Father, we thank you for the story, for, the, for your word that you've spoken to us uh, in the world through your prophets, um, through, your, um, through your power. You've communicated us a plan of salvation, a plan for creation, a plan to restore your kingdom. We thank you that you communicated even more concretely through your word made flesh, your son, Jesus, that at the center of that is, a, uh, is, is grace and the availability of sinners to find salvation, hope, healing in you. And we pray that we would be encouraged in that this morning and that we might also be changed by it this morning. We need your spirit and we ask for it to be at work in our midst. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. C.S. Lewis was asked, uh, I, I, we reference this quite often, he was asked, what makes Christianity unique? What's the thing that separates Christianity from all these other religions? And his reply was, very quick, grace. That's the answer. Grace distinguishes Christianity from all the other religions. In fact, we could say that everything that God has communicated to us is grace. General, so theologians talk about general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is how God has communicated himself through creation. That, that uh, creation speaks to us. It speaks about who our creator is. Did you see the NASA pictures this past week? It's incredible. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Those, those, those pictures, just the night sky, uh, a baby's face, all of these things speak of who God is. And not just that, but also special revelation. We can't, if I look at a mountain or a NASA picture, I can't get enough information to learn how to be saved. I need special, I need, we need something more specific. And God has communicated that through his scriptures, the word, and even more specifically through Jesus, the word made flesh. That's his most concrete revelation to humanity. So you got general revelation, revelation, how God communicates through creation, special revelation, how God communicates through his word and through Jesus. And listen to what Dutch theologian Herman Bovink says, grace is the content of both revelations, both revelations, General, special, it's all grace. Now, we can define grace all day long. In fact, we've been doing it for the last couple of weeks. Grace, real simply, is undeserved favor. But really what we need to kind of get great, this idea of grace to kind of drop down into our heart and bones, are stories of grace. Stories that, that help us understand what grace looks like. And we have that story. And we're in the middle of it. If you look at the sermon titles, Grace is Wilds, part two. So this is a second part, or we got another part next week. We're in the middle of this story. And if you, didn't, if you weren't here last week, or you didn't hear the sermon last week, I encourage you to, to go back and listen, because we're picking up where we left off. And we're in the middle of a story here. But, but Joseph is... Well, let me, let me back up a little bit and, and just get, kind of set things up. Joseph is, is, is a brother of 11 brothers, that, uh, or 12 total, 
that gets favor from his father. His father loves him. His father dotes on him. And really the reason is because Joseph is, is one of Rachel's sons. One of two. Benjamin and Joseph are Rachel's sons. And these two brothers get special treatment. But really, Joseph was the, was the prized one of, of Jacob, the father. And the other brothers, Leah's sons, the, Le- the, the wife that J- Jacob never wanted, they were just kind of there. They were like workforce for Jacob. But there was no love for them. And they couldn't stand Joseph, his brothers, Leah's sons. Couldn't stand Joseph because of it. And so what did they do? They, just, they wanted to kill him, but they kind of let off the gas a little bit on that and said, let's just sell him as a slave. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. He had these dreams that his brothers would bow down before him. And Joseph, he was kind of a brash young man. It's understandable why they would do this. He talked about these dreams. But they sell him as a slave to Egypt. He, he's in Egypt as a slave. He's, he's wrongfully convicted of sexual assault in Egypt. He's thrown into prison for more than a decade. He spends time in prison. And then just in the last few chapters, he's been... This breathtaking exaltation to become essentially the prime minister of the whole world. He's in charge of Egypt. And he is the man who is saving the whole world in the midst of this global famine that's inflicted the whole world. It's, a, it's stunning, the turn of events for Joseph. So all the world's coming to him and he's doling out the food. And, and guess who shows up? His brothers, the ones that sold him off as a slave. But here's the thing. They don't recognize him. They don't, you know, he's, he's shaven. He's, he's 20 years since they last saw him. He's, he, he's got his Egyptian attire, regal attire on. He doesn't look like when he left. And they don't recognize, but he recognizes them. And he's, it, it's, it's not quite even clear what he's doing. With them. What, what do you do with the people that wronged you? They're bowing before you. You have all power over them. How do you treat them? He's, he's masterminding a ruse to bring them together. It's a ruse of grace. That's what he's doing. And we're, gonna, we're picking it up today. We're in the middle of this story. Last week, he saw them. He sent them home. Well, he threw them in prison. He kept Simeon back. But he kept saying, I want to I see this younger brother that you have. Go home. Feed your families. And come back. Now, but here's one more thing. One more piece of this puzzle. Somehow, when they left, the money that they used to buy the grain were in their sacks when they got home. And so they're like panicking about this. You know, the, the, the king of the world, they think we stole from them. And so they're very nervous. So they've got a brother who's being held in, pr- in prison back in Egypt. And, and they've got need for food, but, and th- but they stole this money. And so there's all these barriers of like, we need to go to the salvation, but what are they going to do to us when we get back to Egypt? So that's where we left off. Now, last week we, we saw in Grace's Wiles that the context for Grace is dysfunction. That's the family dynamics, is complete and utter dysfunction. That's where grace does its work. That's where grace operates. If you feel that your life is like beyond repair, it's not. It's actually ripe for grace. Grace is entry. That's the context, dysfunction. And then the second thing we talked about is how grace approaches us. When it approaches, it disrupts. Those brothers were knocked off their feet when they saw Joseph. Not, not knowing, just what he was doing. He disrupted their lives. They were, worried. they were like, oh my gosh, our sins are coming back. God is judging us 
for what we did 20 years ago. That's what's happening. This is God's judgment on us. They're getting wrecked. They're messed up. They're getting messed up in their, in their minds. Now, but from the standpoint of Joseph, grace comes with surgical precision. It comes with all wisdom and discernment. Joseph is, you might say, spiritually operating on his brothers. And we're going to see where it leads. Actually, not this week, but next week. But let's, let's keep going. Again, next, come next week, it comes to this final conclusion. But we're right in the middle of the story of this three-parter. So this morning, this is what we're going to see about grace. We're going to see how grace changes us. And then we're going to see where grace takes us. Okay, so two things. How grace changes us and where it takes us. The first, how grace changes us. We said this last week, but one of the challenges of, um, of our faith is believing that grace actually will change not just us, but all of creation is being transformed by it. Um, that it can, as, as it relates to us personally, um, as the hymn says, Amazing Grace, that it can teach our hearts to fear. That it can teach our hearts to fear. If you're a parent in, in the room, or a former parent, you know, kids grown up out of the house, if you're working with kids right now, think, think, don't you, isn't it hard for you to believe that grace can change their hearts? Don't you lean into the law to get them to conform? If you lay down the law clearly and loudly and with force, then you can get them to change. Now, that could bring outward conformity to the law, to, to the rules, but it's not going to change their heart. It's grace that changes a heart. And Eugene Peterson, he, he likens it to water. I think it's really helpful. He says, it's like, he says grace is like water. When you're standing outside, let's say, a pool, and you brush your arm through it, you think there's no way this can support a life, a body, a 200-pound body. No way it can support that. And then you get into the water, and you realize there's like buoyancy to it. That if you, if you rest in it right, it can hold you up. It can hold you up, and so it is with grace. From the outside, it doesn't look like it quite has the power. But you get inside of it, you experience it, and you realize it is this powerful force that transforms. And that's what we're seeing here. And we're seeing that in the life of Judah. Remember Judah? Cold, calloused, heart. Remember, remember Judah was the ringleader? He's fourth in line from Leah. He's Leah's fourth child. And back in chapter 37, verse 26, they're contemplating what to do with their little punk brother. Do we kill him or, or, or do something else? And this is what Judah says. What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites as a slave and let not our hand be upon him for... He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh, he says. And his brothers listen to him. He has kind of the authority among these brothers. He's like the leader, the alpha of his breeders. They say, okay, we'll sell him as a slave. And that's what they do. And then in the very next chapter, so Judah's the ringleader for this awful act of his brother. And then in the next chapter, Judah moves to the Canaanites. Remember, this is always a bad sign. You know, uh-oh, Canaanites, this is trouble. And Judah marries a Canaanite woman, woman and he has uh, sons. And two of his sons are very, very wicked sons. And God actually puts them to death. And there's a widow, Tamar, who's left. 
And Judah promises that he will give his youngest son to Tamar as a wife. Because remember, in this culture, a widow is a very vulnerable member of society. And it was through marriage and children that the, that the woman would find um, security in the world. And so Judah strings her along, and his youngest son gets to marriage age. And he doesn't marry her off. He's not being true to his word. In fact, in a, um, in a moment, he, in a odd moment. She dresses up as a prostitute and he sleeps with her and he doesn't have payment. So he gives her a signet to say, I will, I will pay you in time. His daughter-in-law, she's covered, she's covered in these prostitute garments, unrecognizable. He goes back and tries to pay her, but she's gone. They don't know where she is. And then months later, Judah learns that Tamar, this girl, in, this woman living in his house, has been immoral. Do you remember what his response is to that immoral immorality? Burn her. That's what he says. Burn her. And then she, they, you know, they're moving her to to burn her, and she pulls out the signet. She says, "It's by this the man who this belongs to that I've been that I'm pregnant." And what does Judah say? Oh, it's not mine. That's not mine. Does Judah? Say, oh, she must have taken, she lives in my house, so she stole that from me. No, he's cut to the heart, right? He's cut to the heart. And he says, she is more righteous than I. That's the transformation moment for Judah. That's when God's grace grabs him. And the reason we know that is because if God's grace hasn't grabbed you, you're operating out of self-righteousness. And Tamar pulls out the signet. You say, it's not mine. Nope, I didn't do that. I had, there's nothing to do with that. You're in denial about it. You have to be, because that's the only way the project of self-righteousness works. But conviction of sin, straight through the heart. And it's grace. She's more righteous than I am. And so now we're beginning to see, several chapters later, many years later, how this grace of God is working in Judah's heart. He emerges a changed man, and we're going to see it here. Look at verse 1. So the famine is still going. It's a seven-year famine, remember, and we're only a couple of years into it. And it's severe. They ate all the grain that they had brought from Egypt. Their father, Jacob, said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, and remember, remember what they keep calling their brothers. Keep, remember, they, don't, they don't know that this is Joseph that's in charge of the food. And remember what they keep calling him? The man. Well, the man, but the man said, but the man said, the Lord said, and they sometimes call him the Lord. So they're calling their little brother, the man. He says, well, but the man, remember that the man solemnly warned us saying, you shall not see my face unless your little brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we'll go and get food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said, you shall not see my face unless your little brother Benjamin is with you. So how does Jacob respond? He sulks. He interprets all of this in relation to himself. He says, why did you treat me so badly? Verse 6. As to tell the man that you had another brother. Why did you do that? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred. He's saying, they, they said, is your he said, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? We, we just answered the questions. We were being truthful. How could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? 
So, but here's what I want you to see. Look at what Judah does. Judah said, verse 8, to his father, Jacob, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge for his safety. Another translation. I will become surety for him. In other words, I will do whatever it takes to get him back. If that means giving up my life, I will do that to bring him back safe. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, Father, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. I will bear the fault for the rest of my life. I will even give my life if that's what it takes to get Benjamin back. So all of a sudden, selfish, calloused Judah is now giving everything for Benjamin. And this is what God's grace does. It creates a changed heart. This is what Judah has here, a changed heart. This is a different Judah than we saw in chapter 37 and chapter 38. He is a new man. And the way in which he has been changed... So how does grace, so grace changes us. How does it change us? Here's what it does. It makes us sacrificial. It makes us willing to extend grace to others. It makes us willing to lay ourselves down for another. Did Jacob deserve this from Judah? Let's, let's face it. Judah has been wronged his whole life by Jacob. Jacob has not loved him as a father should love a son. He's been neglected. His father didn't deserve this. Benjamin's probably maybe a brat too. We don't know. But he was getting all the love in the family. It, w- it would have been understandable for Judah to feel, I'm not going to save that guy. But no, he's not, he's not thinking of any of that. He's not remembering the wrongs against him. He's just extending himself on behalf of the family. You treat others how you believe God has treated you. Did you know that? The way you treat others is how you believe God has treated you. If you're short, angry, judgmental, you probably believe that that's how God has been toward you. Gracious, loving, means that you're starting to see God for who he is as he's revealed himself to be. Remember, all of his revelation, grace. Judah encountered God's grace and it led to a radical change. A callous, selfish man is essentially offering his life up for his brother and and for the benefit of his father. And this is what God's grace in Christ does. Now, you may think, okay, so if I'm in a war and my buddy, my little buddy in the, in the, you know, in the trench next to me needs help, I'll jump, I'll, I'll jump, uh, you know, on the grenade to take the grenade for him. And that's pretty much the application. I give my life for others. Well, that's one application. But there's so many ways in which this applies. It may mean 15 extra minutes with a friend in need. It may mean spending 20 minutes writing a letter of encouragement to a family member who's going through a difficult time. Giving up of yourself is basically reorienting your day and your life and your hour, not around yourself, but around those those around you. That's what Judah essentially has done. He's being humble. He's considering the needs of others before he's considering his own needs. That's humility. That's what grace has produced in his heart. 
So Judah extends his life to others who don't deserve it. So grace changes us. That's the first point. Makes us sacrificial, gracious, humble. Here's the other thing grace does. It takes us somewhere. And that's our next consideration. Where does grace take us? Look at verse 11. They loaded up for Egypt uh, and they returned and they put money. They, the money that they brought back from Egypt that they thought they were like, what in the world happened? We paid for this, didn't we? And the money was. So they're bringing that money back to say, look, we don't know what happened, why the money was in our sacks, but we're giving it back to you. We're not thieves. We didn't take it. We're giving it back. They brought, they're bringing more money and they bring gifts. This is like verse 11. They bring choice fruits. A present for the man, for the man, a little balm, honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, almonds, all that they can whip up, they're bringing to the man, Joseph. Verse 16, when Joseph saw them from a distance, he sees Benjamin's with them. And he said to the steward of the house, bring the men into the house, slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought them in to Joseph's house. Okay, so he sees them from a distance. He sends one of his servants, Joseph's servants, to receive them and invite them into his house. And look at what the brothers are thinking. Verse 18. They're, they're afraid because they're brought into Joseph's house and they're thinking it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we're brought in so that he may assault us. And fall upon us and make us servants and take our donkeys. This guy, he's just out to get us. This is what he's doing. And so, you know, uh, a few years ago, the Astros uh, were caught stealing signs. Big scandal in Major League Baseball. There's a, there's a whole podcast on it. It's very insightful to listen to. But at the, there was a point in the season, early in the, earlier in the season, when nobody knew what they were doing. There were suspicions where they started accusing every other team that they were playing of stealing signs. Major League Baseball received numerous calls from the Astros organization saying, that team's stealing signs. That team's stealing signs. See, this is, this is what sin does. You, you tend to assume that, that others will treat you or do to you what you've done to them. And the brothers know. They've got a guilty conscience. They know the sins that they've committed. And they're thinking that this man has nothing but good. I mean, nothing but bad up his sleeve. He's going to harm us. He's going to hurt us. He's going to take our donkeys, is what they're thinking. And so verse 20, they're trying to kind of explain things. Oh, my Lord, to the steward of the house. We came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we've brought it back. We've brought other money down so we can buy new food, and we don't know who put the money in our sacks. And so the steward speaks, and they cower. They're, they're probably cowering. Oh, my gosh, what's, what's he going to say? And listen to what he gives them. A word of grace. Peace to you. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. We received your money. Then he brings imprisoned Simeon out to them. They've not seen him in months. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph coming at noon, for they heard that he should eat with them. 
So they're like, okay, we, we made it through the first challenge, the steward. So far, so good. Now we need to kind of get our things in order. Let's get the gift. Guys, get the present. The, the, the man's coming. He's coming at noon. And so Joseph comes in from saving the world. That's what he's doing all day long. He's out distributing food to the whole world. He comes in, verse 26. They brought him into the house to present, uh, to give him the present that they had with them. And they bowed down to him to the ground. The dream fulfilled again, right? This is all the brothers bowing before him here. And and look at what verse 27. He inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and they prostrated themselves before him. And again, the dream is fulfilled against all odds. And then Joseph, verse 29, sees his brother, Benjamin. This is, his, this is his, his full brother. This is probably his best friend growing up. He sees him. And he says to them, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke? He said, God, be gracious to you, my son. And he sees him, and, and he just, the memories are flooding, and he's welling up. And verse 30 he, he runs out of the room. His compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and wept there. And then he collects himself, he washes his face, he comes out, and he says, serve the food. And look at this. He seats them. Verse 33, according to their birth order, they're thinking, oh my Gosh, how did, who is this guy? What in the world? Twelve or eleven brothers seated in birth order. So they look at each other and they're just amazed. Remember, Joseph at times is like he's messing with them, but no, he's he's pursuing them in grace, and we get a big clue. Like, what, what, what exactly? We, it's not been entirely clear what he's doing with them, except for he keeps running out and crying while they're there, which tells us he's not, his heart is not hardened towards his brothers. He keeps welling up with compassion for them. He's weeping for them. And it all goes back to what he named his sons. Remember what he names his sons? I've forgotten about the sufferings. I've, I've forgotten about the bitterness toward my household. And God has reoriented my whole life around all of the blessings that I am experiencing now. That's the governor of all of Joseph's actions. Even though it's not clear, we know those things are true. And we see as he wells up with tears, he's, he's moving toward them in compassion. But we get a big clue right here to what he's doing, what he's up to. Verse 34. Because remember, why did he keep asking about his youngest brother? Why did he imprison them all for three days? Why did he leave Simeon in prison as collateral? Why did he insist that the brother comes back? You know, why the silver in the sacks? All of these things. Big clue. Verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But what does he do with Benjamin? He gives him five times as much as the others. Joseph does to Benjamin what Jacob had been doing to Benjamin and Joseph before he was lost, 
their whole lives. He's extending favor to Benjamin. And he wants to see. He wants to see how his brothers respond. He wants to see if his brothers have changed since 20 years ago when they wanted to cut off the head of their brother. So how are they treating him? What does he see? What does he discern from this act? Look at verse 34 again. They ate, they drank, and they were merry with him. They're changed. These brothers have changed. Dad, Jacob, the king of the world, all these people are just doting on Benjamin, like like in a showy way. You know, he's like giving the brothers their little food, and he pulls out this ridiculous five times the portion. Hey, Benjamin, we got something special for you. And he gives him that. He gives him that, and maybe a little toy to go along with it. I mean, it's like he's just over the top with the, with the, with the meal. But they're mar- they, they eat, they drink, they're merry. He's searching their hearts. He just got a big clue, and that is that his brothers have changed. But still, the question remains, the question of the hour, where does grace take us? And do you see where grace takes us? It takes us to a feast. It takes us to a feast. This is where the grace of God takes the people of God, to a feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb is, is, is where we're heading where God will shower us, undeserving as we are, will shower us with a feast and blessings. And he will keep bringing out not just five portions, in, you know, just infinite portions for all of us, all of his people. That's where grace takes us, to a feast. I hope you're seeing, and again, the story is not finished. We're going to continue next week. But I hope that you're seeing how grace changes us. How it can have the power to work on us. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it will. Extending favor. They need, I mean, the person that's wronging me, they don't need my blessing. They need my, my righteousness, my, my judgment upon them so they can really know how they hurt me. That's what's going to change them. They need to know. But that's not how the gospel works. That's not what Revelation tells us. That the way to bring about change and healing in relationships is through the extension of grace. Now, I want to highlight this with just a story from recent history. In the 1990s, as, uh, in South Africa, there was a system of apartheid which um, was similar to segregation in, in this country. Um, it was basically white, white people in the country of South Africa, mostly Dutch and British you know, colonists that had settled there, had better treatment than the native black population. It was called apartheid. It was a separation of, of races. There were many evils and wrongs that the white population inflicted against the black population. And when that wall of hostility that existed between those races came down, Desmond Tutu, an Anglican priest, a black Anglican priest, was appointed as the director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. His job was to heal this country that had been divided over these race issues. So what this commission decided to do is that they would hear cases of violence and offense against um, the black community in in South Africa in a court setting. But there would be no um, penalties 
or charges brought against the offenders. It would simply be a moment to hear the charges and for those to, they could ask requests, but there wouldn't be any sentencing. It wasn't like the, the Nuremberg trials. So in one of these courtrooms, there's a Mr. Vanderbrock, a white man, who uh, was hearing what, the, the courtroom was hearing what he had done to one family in particular, a black family, a, a, a family with one son. And Mr. Vanderbrock shot the son and years later came back, took the father and strapped him to wood and burned him to death. So the, 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 now an elderly woman is sitting here uh, hearing, reliving the horror that she had experienced. And the judge said, what, what do you want from Mr. Vanderbrock? She said she wanted him to go to the place where he burned her, her husband and, and the father of her only son and take the dirt and give him a proper burial. And then she said this. This is so hard to believe. Mr. Vanderbrock, she said this. Mr. Vanderbrock took all my family away from me. And I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto, spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. I would like Mr. Vanderbrock to know that he is forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. And, and, and as this is happening, the people in the courtroom start singing Amazing Grace. And she, she gets up, this elderly woman, she gets up, she makes her way to him. This weak, feeble, elderly woman making her way to this policeman. And you know what he does? He faints. <laughs> she, she just knocks him off his feet. He faints. He's, sh he's shocked at this love. And it's shocking. You, you wouldn't even believe it. If, it did, if, if this was in a movie, you wouldn't believe this. It's, too, it's, it's just too hard to believe. But this is, this is amazing grace. This is the gospel, isn't it? I mean, we, we killed the one and only son of God the Father. We essentially have burned the Father in our rejection of him. But he says, I got, I got more love to give. I'm, I'm coming to you. I'm pursuing you in my love. It's shocking. It's faint-worthy. But knocked off our feet by the power of this grace, the Spirit raises us up and gives us the strength to walk in the mercies that we've received. And we, and we walk lives of living sacrifice. We begin to extend grace to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these stories. I, I thank you for the power of your spirit to demonstrate uh, grace. I, I, I can't, what, what that lady did in, in South Africa is a work of your spirit. And I give you thanks that it's been recorded. I thank you also for the work that Joseph is doing on his brothers that we're seeing take place. Would you be at work in our lives? Thank you that all of this is moving toward a feast where we undeserving sinners can dine with you and be merry as the brothers of Joseph were. In the meantime, sustain us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.